Well, let me thank you very much indeed for your um, warm welcome. It is a delight um, to be here. I was warned how good your music was and uh, how good your singing was, and you've not disappointed me. So thank you very much. Let me bring greetings from the congregation uh, where I serve in, in Ealing in West London. Um, we are very, very grateful um, for your support, for your partnership in the gospel in sending Czech and Waima to us. And we are very grateful indeed and do keep praying for us. I'm not sure um, that you're going to understand my accent, but uh, I am certain uh, that I don't understand many of yours. So um, it really is a joy to be here. Let's turn in the Word of God um, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. There was a famous preacher in the UK at the turn of the 20th century called F.B. Mayer. Some of you uh, will know his books. They became popular. And when F.B. Mayer was in his last illness... 
he asked his doctor, his physician, who was a close personal friend, how long have I got? And the doctor said, well, just a couple of hours. You should be dead by four o'clock this afternoon. It doesn't say much, does it, for his bedside manner. But apparently, F.B. Mayer turned over and went to sleep. And he awoke with a start at six o'clock in the evening. He looked at his bedside clock and said, goodness me, I should have been gone hours ago. Now, if you knew that you only had a couple of hours to live, or a couple of days, or a couple of weeks, how would you cope with that? Who would you want to write to? Who would you need to email? What would you need to say if you knew that your time in this world was coming to an end in the not-too-distant future? Well, that is the occasion of of this letter to Timothy, uh, from Paul to his apprentice, Timothy. Paul's time here in this world was coming to an end. It's his last letter. He is in prison. You've heard the expression, haven't you? Nero fiddled while Rome burned. That is the occasion, roughly. It's about 64 AD. Nero, according to tradition, set fire to Rome. He had a very ambitious redevelopment project, and he wanted to clear the city of the slums. And so he set fire to Rome, and he needed someone to blame, so he blamed the Christians. And as a result of that, the first official persecution, Roman persecution of the church broke out. And that is the background to this letter. It's in that sort of time that the Apostle Paul was arrested. The Apostle Paul is no stranger, is he, to prison life. He was a repeat offender when it came to telling people about the Lord Jesus. But this time it's different because the apostle knows he's not coming out. He's on death row and the executioner is sharpening the blade and he knows what is going to happen. Samuel Johnson said, when you know you're going to die tomorrow, it wonderfully concentrates the mind. And Paul knows he's going to die. And what's he concerned about? What's on his mind? Well, what Paul is concerned about is not the fact that he is going to lose his head, but that the world doesn't lose the chance to hear the gospel. And so he writes to Timothy. The verse which unlocks the letter, which gives you the theme of the letter, is verse 14. Can you see that? Look at that verse with me. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And 2 Timothy is going to tell us how to do that. 2 Timothy tells us, how do we preserve the gospel after we're dead and gone, so that the gospel will continue to advance? So, three points in this chapter. First of all, Paul writes to Timothy to remind Timothy of his legacy in the Lord. He reminds Timothy of his legacy in the Lord. That's verses 3 to 7. Up to now, Christianity has been a kind of protected official protected religion. Christians are regarded as weird kind of Jews, a Jewish sect, and Jewish Judaism was an official protected religion in the Roman Empire. But all that's about to change with the first official persecution of the church. And Paul is in prison in Rome, on death row, not as some kind of Jewish rabbi, but Paul is there as a Christian. 
and Christians are being blamed, and suddenly they are very much in the public eye, and Paul is on trial because he is a Christian. And it's very interesting how he speaks about that. Look at what he says about his life and ministry in verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, my forefathers, with a clear conscience. Do you see what he's saying there? Paul is saying, I'm not some cult leader. I'm not involved in some new fad, some new heresy called Christianity. Jesus is not some Johnny-come-lately messiah. This is the fulfillment of what was promised to our ancestors, to our forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and you and I, as well as Timothy. We stand at the back end of a long line of believers, stretching right back to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. The Old Testament is our book. We are not disconnected from that. And that is what I think Paul means when he refers to our ancestors, to our forefathers. That is our legacy. And you notice how Paul goes on to talk about the heritage that Timothy has, the legacy he has. So look at verse 3. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And then he goes on, doesn't he, in the second half of verse 4. To speak about the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice as well. He goes on to speak about his mum his mom, and his grandmother. And it seems as if he's suggesting, I don't think it is fair to suggest it, but I think you can read these verses and think Timothy is really a little bit of a mummy's boy. His father isn't around. He's overprotected by his mum. He believes the same thing as his granny. And at first reading, it seems to confirm everybody's worst prejudices about Christianity. I don't know whether you do this in the U.S., But we do door-to-door ministry. It is absolutely terrifying. Uh, You go around the area and you knock on the door. Normally, I knock as quietly as possible and pray that the person doesn't hear you. And then when they open the door, um, it's normally some giant of a man uh, wearing a kind of very tight T-shirt. And uh, he comes to the door and And I mutter something, I'm the minister of the church around the corner. Do you know what he says? He says, I'll get the wife. Or I'll send the kids to Sunday school. It's a standard response in the UK, it might be different here. But they think Christianity is for women and children. And here's Timothy and Paul mentions his mum and his grandma, but there's no mention of his dad. And it just confirms people's prejudices against Christianity, doesn't it? It's just for women and children. It's old-fashioned. It's it's out of date. It's something from a bygone age. And here's Paul congratulating Timothy on having the same faith as his granny. It's a bit oldie-worldy. Surely, Paul, we need something a little bit more up-to-date than that, don't we? And people, you've read those terrible commentaries, isn't it, that talk about Timothy, that he was a little bit of a wimp. Uh, he, he had a dodgy stomach. He's a little bit, uh, his dad doesn't seem to be around. He's overprotected by these women in his family. And that is the impression that you get. Oh, I think that is unfair. But that is one of the great prejudices against Christianity in our land. And Timothy seems, doesn't he, one of these dependent, rather inadequate, weak characters. You know the kind of thing people say to you, well, I'm glad that prayer helps you, but I don't need that sort of thing. I don't need a crutch 
in my life. Christianity is for the weak and the feeble-minded. The women and the kids, it's irrelevant. Now, if you read it like that this morning, you are making a huge mistake. If you abandon Christianity because of that. Because I want you to notice that Paul is very, very positive indeed about Timothy's legacy. His background. He says, thank God, I thank God as I think about your mother and your grandmother. I thank God as I think of your upbringing, for your heritage. Those godly women, Lois and Eunice. And Paul is really thankful for that. He says, even before you were converted, look at chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3 and verse 15. Your mum and your grandma, they taught you the Bible from your childhood. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Old Testament, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I thank God for that. I thank God for the godly heritage you've got. And so should you. So should you. Because that is one of the ways that the gospel is preserved in the world. That is one of the ways the gospel advances in society. How the gospel is entrusted, handed over to generations long after you and I are dead and buried. The gospel is going to continue. It will not die out with us. It was here long before we arrived. It will be here long after we're dead and buried. And that is what Paul is saying. You want to see the gospel advance in Colombia? You want to see the gospel continue after your day? Well, here's the application. Leave a legacy, build a dynasty. Leave a legacy, start a dynasty. That is one of the ways God preserves the gospel in the world. Every one of you here this morning, to a greater or lesser extent, is a product of your upbringing, of your inheritance. That is one of the marks, isn't it, of of a good biography. That it doesn't start with the subject. It goes back to the parents and the grandparents. And you see how the individual fits into his background or his heritage. Every family here has got some kind of history. And what a blessing, what a privilege it is to be brought up in a believing home. What a privilege it is to belong to a believing family. Now, if you're, a Christi- if you're from a Christian home, you teenagers who are here, you, you children that are here, if you're from a Christian home and that is your background, don't be embarrassed by that. Thank God for that. It's an amazing privilege that God has granted you, God has chosen you in his sovereignty. He has allowed you to be born into a home where you hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, where you are prayed for. It is a wonderful thing. Don't squander that. Don't take it for granted. I say this as well, mums and dads, what a wonderful thing that is. I don't know what your culture is like, but but in our culture, the world in lots of ways discounts uh, what it is to be a mother or a grandmother. It's seen in some ways as nothing. But as far as the Bible is concerned, it is a high calling to be a mum in God's kingdom, to be a grandmother in the covenant people of God. It's a wonderful privilege. And we want to be praying for mothers and grandmothers in this congregation for their high calling, for their ministry. Every family has a history. 
And at some point in every family's history, if you go back far enough, eventually, somewhere along the line, God breaks in to a family. And God raises up a matriarch or a patriarch, someone through whom he's going to change the whole direction of your family. And you may be that person. You may be, uh, this morning, you come from a a non-Christian home. And you're saying, my my parents didn't love the Lord. That is not my background. Well, if that's so, and you're a Christian, maybe you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe the Lord has made you a Christian so that you will become the matriarch or the patriarch, someone who your children and their children and their children will look back to and say, thank God that they became a Christian because it's changed the future direction of our family. And if you want to see the gospel preserved in Colombia, then leave a legacy, start a dynasty. And if you're not yet married, marry in the Lord. And if you are married, teach your kids the Bible. And if you're still single and you're not sure whether you're going to get married, be a surrogate aunt or grandmother to the children of this church. And if you haven't got children and you're not able to have children, you be a surrogate aunt or grandmother to the children of this church. And you pray for your nephews. You pray for your nieces so that future generations will rise up and bless you. Three generations time. Who is going to be preaching the Bible in this room? Who is going to be evangelizing the people of Colombia three generations from now? Well, it ought to be one of our children, oughtn't it? and one of our grandchildren, and our nephews, and our nieces. Let's see to it that it is. Start a dynasty, leave a legacy. One of the ways the gospel is preserved is by doing that. But secondly, secondly, Paul calls for gospel loyalty. Now look at verse 15 with me. Can you do that? You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. You've got to wonder what their parents were thinking, haven't you? In verse 15... But look what happens. You see what it says? It says, everyone, everyone in the province of Asia, all who are in Asia, deserted me, turned away from me. Ephesus is in Asia. Ephesus was where Timothy was based. Everyone in the province of Asia, that includes Ephesus, Paul is saying, everyone has deserted me. Uh, Some of you will remember a man called Khrushchev. He was the man who followed Stalin, and he was one of the leaders of the Soviet Union. He's a very, very interesting character, a leader in the 60s. And he was once in Washington, D.C., and he and JFK, President Kennedy, did a press conference. Khrushchev had been part of the Politburo during Stalin's reign of terror, and now he's taken over from him. And during the press conference, he was asked by one very brave journalist, what were you doing, Mr. Khrushchev, when Stalin was killing millions of people? It's fair enough, isn't it? And as the question was being translated, Khrushchev, with a very, very hot temper, grew redder and redder into the face. He was a very hot-tempered man indeed, until, as the interpreter finished, he finally exploded into the microphone. Who said that? Who asked that question? Of course, at that point, nobody moved a muscle. And everybody had their head down in their notebooks. No one made eye contact. 
Kreuzhoff said, that is exactly what I was doing, keeping my head down, and I'm ashamed of it. Now, what makes you want to keep your head down as a follower of Jesus Christ? What embarrasses you in school or in the workplace about being a Christian? What makes you ashamed to be associated with Jesus Christ? It's very easy, isn't it, when you read verse 15, just look at it again. It's very easy to feel superior to the people of Asia. They had all deserted Paul, but what were they doing? They were just keeping their heads down. And what are the things that make you and I want to keep a low profile, to keep our heads down? Now, three times, Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Let me show you that. Look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. And then in verse 11 and 12, he speaks about how he was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And again, he says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed, says Paul, so don't you be ashamed. And then he speaks about Onesiphorus in verse 16. And he says, Onesiphorus, um, he was not ashamed of my chains. Three times Paul says we're not to be ashamed. He is calling for gospel loyalty from Timothy and from us. Now, why would anyone be ashamed Especially when you think of what the gospel is. It's such good news, isn't it? How can there be any good news, Paul? You are in prison. You are in death row. You're about to have your head chopped off. Everybody in Asia has deserted you. How can there be any good news? Where's the good news? We'll look at verses 8, 9, and 10. I wonder whether you've seen the film Amazing Grace. Have you seen the film Amazing Grace, the story of William Wilberforce? I'm, I'm um, reading his biography. It is, it is a wonderful biography by William Hague. Let me tell you an, an interesting story about Wilberforce and the abolition, uh, the Society for the Abolition of Slavery. Do you know that um, Wilberforce started the Society for the Abolition of Slavery 50 years, 5-0, 50 years before slavery was finally abolished? In fact, out of the original group of people who met together to form the society for the abolition of slavery, only one person survived to actually see it happen. Fifty years of strategizing, plotting and planning, sweating, suffering for the cause. The abolition of slavery. Now look what Paul says here. He says there's another kind of slavery that he refers to. Look at how he refers to it in verses 8 to 10. Can you have a look at that for me? He says, God has saved us, verse 9, and rescued us. It's a rescue operation. Now, in what way has God saved us? Well, look at verse 9. He says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. God gave us not what we deserve, But he gave us the opposite of what we deserve. You might not like it this morning, but you deserve hell. But God gives us life. And that is how Paul introduces himself in verse 1. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. We don't deserve life as Christians, but God gives us life eternal. God gives us abundant life 
through Jesus Christ. And look at the way that he's given it. Now, do you see that? He says, before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time, God had a plan to abolish death. Before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time, God set up the society for the abolition of sin and death. But now, in time, he's revealed it. Do you see it? So verse 9, he set it up before the ages began. And verse 10, which now has been manifested, has been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He's abolished death. He's diffused death. Paul, where is he? Do you remember? Sitting on death row. There's a bomb ticking next to him. The executioner is sharpening the blade. But Paul says, thank God, Jesus has diffused the bomb. That's what he's saying. Paul knows he's going to have to die. I'm going to have to die, so are you. Paul would say, I'm afraid of dying. I, I don't want my head chopped off. I'm sure you don't. I'm afraid of dying. But I can honestly say this morning, I'm not afraid of death as a Christian, and neither should you be. Because Jesus has diffused death. He's diffused the bomb. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 15, that, that wonderful passage where Paul taunts death, he jabs at death. And he says, we don't have to live in fear of death anymore. And he, he, he taunts death. He says, death, where is your sting? You know, a bee, it stings you. And then because the bee has stung, the sting has been taken out and it dies. And death is like that. And that is what Jesus has done for us. This is what Paul is saying. Now, why would anyone want to be ashamed of Jesus when they understand what he has come to do and that he's put himself under the sting of death. What is the sting of death? It's sin and guilt. That is why death is so terrifying for our culture. That is why people are afraid of death because in death you don't just encounter your own mor mor mortality and your own weakness, but in death you encounter God, your creator, and you have to give an account to him. It is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment, and that is why death is frightening. But thanks be to God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, because he's given us the victory in Christ Jesus. Jesus has diffused death. He's extracted the sting out of death. So you don't have to go through life in fear, in bondage to the fear of death. Death is one of the great taboos of our world, isn't it? One American hospital describes death as negative patient input. People are afraid to talk about death, aren't they? They're afraid to think about it. But you don't have to go through life like that. You might fear the circumstances, of course. That's fair enough. But you don't have to be afraid of death anymore. You and I, we belong to the Society for the Abolition of Sin and Death. That is what this church is. Maybe you should rename your church. That is our message. That is what we're about. We belong to the Society for the Abolition of Sin and Death. And that is the challenge that Tim, Paul is giving Timothy. Look at verse 6. 
He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. We're not sure what this laying hands really is. It could be ordination. It could be his baptism. But, but the point is very clear. He's saying to Timothy, this young man whose life has been turned around by the gospel and it's been passed down to him by his mom and by his grandma, Paul says, make sure you don't grow cold. Fan into flame. Stir up the gift that is in you. Be a passionate Christian. Don't be lukewarm. Be self-disciplined. Be loving. Be powerful. Be effective. Don't be half-hearted about this message. Because you have got the very message that this world needs to hear. So stir up the gift that is within you. A call to loyalty. And then thirdly and lastly, Paul invites Timothy to share the liberty of suffering for Christ. Share the liberty of suffering, of suffering for Christ. Look at verse 8. Now, look at verse 8 with me. Wake up the person next to you if they've fallen asleep. Give them a nudge. And I want you to see the surprise in verse 8. Can you read it for a minute? Just have a look at verse 8. And see if you can spot the surprise. Let me ask you, whose prisoner is he? There's a surprise, isn't it? You see, he's not Nero's prisoner, is he? He's not Nero's prisoner. He's the prisoner of the Lord. Let me describe to you what Paul was like. The, the tradition of, of 2 Timothy, if you read the commentaries, is that Paul, that Paul was in the kind of great state prison. You know, a bit like the Tower of London. So you go to London, everybody knows where the Tower of London is. Um, but if you look at verse 16, at the end of verse 17, you'll see that Paul was not in an obvious position. Onesiphorus had to search for him. And he searched earnestly for him. So it's not obvious where Paul is. Now let me read to you a description of prisons in Rome. It's a lengthy um, uh, quotation, but I think it's worth it. Let me read this to you. The prisons in Rome were squalid and physically dangerous, and delays in court procedures meant that they were usually overcrowded way beyond their capacity. Unheated, sleep was almost impossible on the rough pallets of floor. With no bedding provided, Paul would, Paul would also have been wearing heavy iron chains, perhaps linked to other prisoners, to prevent anyone escaping. The iron reacting to the prisoner's sweat rusted, making their flesh rot. The heaviness weakened limbs already short of food. And as many prisoners commented, the constant noise of chains on stone was yet another factor making sleep impossible. Food beyond a meagre prison ration, which was barely enough to sustain life, was the prisoner's own responsibility. But how could Paul, alone and cut off in Rome, arrange that? Lack of access to water meant that prisoners were not just filthy, but frequently unrecognisable from the caked-on dirt and the matted beard and hair. For who would trust violent prisoners with access to a barber and his razors? Clothes rapidly reduced to rags in such circumstances. It's no wonder that prisoners were associated not only with execution, but also with death from disease and not infrequently suicide. One further obstacle lay in Onesiphorus' path as he traipsed the back streets of Rome, trying to locate the prison which held Paul and identify him among many thousands of prisoners. The prisons were airless and unhygienic because they were largely windowless. Now, obviously, that prevented prisoners from getting out, but it also prevented much light from getting in. 
The more secure a cell was, the less light it would have had, and an underground cell would have had none at all. Now, here it is. Onesiphus was searching for an unrecognizable Paul among thousands of identical wretches, often in the pitch dark. No wonder Paul comments that when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. It would have been a time-consuming, an unpleasant, and a very dangerous task. And Paul says, that is where I am. And he says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me, but join me. Who in their right mind would want to join him? Don't be ashamed of me, join me in suffering for the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me, join me, because I'm not Nero's prisoner, I'm Jesus' prisoner. And isn't that the paradox of Christianity? What is becoming a Christian? It is you handing your life over to Jesus, lock, stock and barrel. And that is what Paul has done. Look at verse 12. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. In those days, you didn't have banks. And if you were going away on a journey, you would find someone and you would give them all your valuables that you had, and you would trust them. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed because I know someone who I can trust myself to. Do you? Who are you going to trust yourself to against the day of judgment? Paul says, I'm not ashamed because I know. He doesn't say, just notice this, he doesn't say, I know what I believe. He says, I know whom. I have believed, and I'm persuaded. George Whitfield, uh, the great evangelist, was once asked, once asked one of his followers, he once asked one of his followers, what do you believe? I believe what my church believes, said the man. Well, what does your church believe? My church believes what I believe, said the man. Whitfield realized he wasn't getting anywhere. So he said, what do you both believe? The same thing, of course, said the man. (laughs) And there are lots of people like that in church, aren't there? You may be here this morning. And you believe something. But you don't know what you believe, really. And you've never really checked it out. You've never read through the Gospels. You've never been persuaded by him. What about you this morning? Have you just drifted into this place? If you have, that's brilliant. But do you know him? Have you ever checked it out? Have you ever sat down and thought who Jesus is and what he's done? And can you trust him? Are you persuaded of him? If you're not, read one of the Gospels. Ask one of the pastors or one of the members here to read it with you. If you've never done that, sit down with somebody. Read the Gospel one-to-one with someone. So that you can say, I am persuaded of him. And that is why I'm prepared to suffer for him. And that's what Paul is saying. I'm not a prisoner to my circumstances. That is why I'm not a spirit, a slave to the spirit of this age. I'm not a prisoner to my own culture or my own subculture. I'm free. I'm free because I'm his prisoner. I'm Jesus' prisoner. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. That is what it means to be a Christian. What is it to be a Christian? It means that you've handed yourself over to him. 
You've entrusted yourself to him. We live near Heathrow Airport. And at Heathrow Airport, there is a school for people who are terrified of flying. And you go to the school, it's a couple of day course, and they, they show you all the statistics of how unlikely it is that your plane will crash. And they bring an air hostess in who talks to you about her experiences. And they bring a pilot in. And they talk to you about the aircraft and the science of the aircraft and how it is nearly impossible for it to crash. And then they take you on a simulator and you go on a simulated flight and you step into the simulated flight and they show you what it feels like and then they show you a film of what it's like. But you know what the last part of the course is? You've got to get on the plane. You've got to entrust yourself to that plane. You've got to get inside, you've got to step inside. Have you done that with Jesus? Some of you, you, you know lots, don't you? But you've never come to that stage where you've, you've entrusted yourself to him. Look at verse 12. But I'm not ashamed. I'm willing to suffer, Paul says, for I know whom I've believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day which has been entrusted to me. Get on the plane. Let me round this up. Let me challenge you. Let me challenge you to share the gospel with anyone and everyone you meet. Let me challenge you not to be ashamed because you've got the greatest message this world has ever heard. And let me challenge you to join the fellowship of the free by staying loyal to Jesus Christ. Stay loyal to the one who has set you free at such a cost to himself. Live for him, and if necessary, die for him. Leave a legacy, start a dynasty, that the gospel will be preserved in this church for generations to come. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful, wonderful news which has been passed down to us. Thank you that here in Colombia the good news has got to us and we have received this message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that in his death, death itself has been destroyed. and We have been given a future and a hope and we've been ushered into everlasting life. Lord, we pray, we pray that you would not allow us to keep quiet, that you'd not allow us to keep our heads down, that you will not allow us to be ashamed of this glorious message. Make us ambassadors for this, we ask, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Our response this morning is the chorus, Lord Be Glorified. I invite you to stand and join in singing together. Mm -hmm. 